We are back with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the Brando Cast, returning for round two. My guest today is a father. He's a husband. He's an alumni of the Upright Citizens Brigade. He was a former resident of New York. Now he lives in the city of Hell Angeles. You've seen him on a billion shows. But most importantly, this dude is the host of a fantastic podcast called Household Faces, where he interviews some of Hollywood's most recognizable and iconic character actors. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the very handsome Mr. John Ross Bowie. Look who's talking, handsome. Thanks for having me. You got a very fancy uh, microphone there. I know. I've upgraded since last we spoke. I uh, I, I got some pro stuff from my, uh, my network, and um, my levels are... Uh, Fucking sweet. <laughs> Hang on, I can make it even better. Hang on, let me just because this is a directional mic. And the last one I had was this omnidirectional thing that like picked up like if a neighbor's dog block, you know, bark two blocks away. But this is nice and precise. You're gonna get nice clean audio with this. Give me an update on household faces. It's um it's going really well. It is uh as you as you said, it's a character actor interviewing other character actors. We had a bit of a spike a few weeks back because we had the great Alfred Molina on the show, and he's coming hot off of a, one of the Spider-Man movies where he he fights a bunch of Spider-Men, and he was uh, an enthusiastic guest, really, really fun to talk to, and it got picked up. It was funny. It got picked up for clickbait by a few comics blogs. Um, and that gave us a little bit of boost to our numbers, but it was nonsense. It was like Alfred Molina discusses the possible return of Doc Ock. And you read the article is like, he's not coming back. <laughs> it, was, it was total garbage. It was it was the Internet um, at kind of its worst, but it did definitely push up our numbers a little bit. We've had a bunch of great people on John Carroll Lynch. Um, we've had Phil Lamar was on. We've had um, Xander Berkeley came on. Mark Shepard. It's been just a really fun way for me to either get to know people I've already known better or meet some of my genuine acting heroes. It's been a blast. Well, give me, you know, again, people should really check it out, especially um, because there's so many great character actors in the city that don't get sort of their they're just desserts they don't get their hour interview i'll tell you that they don't they don't get their hour to like sit down and really go through how they make a living and how they keep enjoying it and that's been a really uh edifying thing but you were going to say something you're going to ask something no i was just going to say what do you i was just going to ask for some of the sort of the cliff notes you sort of said it what some of the cliff notes about you know the struggle of the the classic Los Angeles character actor. Well, what's interesting is, yes, a lot of these guys are still auditioning. Uh, a lot of these guys um, are still renting. Um, they are not necessarily homeowners. And what I find inspiring about that is that that means they're really in this because they love the gig. They really love acting. This is not a golden handcuff situation for these guys. <laughs> they, this is not like, well, I don't want to make another action movie, but I'm going to have to because, you know, I'm on my third divorce in my fifth house. No, these are guys who are really devoted to telling stories and standing in other people's shoes and um, get stuck in some archetypes and then get out of those archetypes and kind of go back and forth. And it's 
it's been so fun talking to people who came to LA or wherever they're based. It's usually LA with the intent of becoming a working actor, not becoming famous, not becoming a huge movie star, just being a working actor. And uh, I, I just find it really inspiring. And I think it'd be a good thing for younger actors to listen to. I think it just gives a lot of perspective. Oh my God. A hundred percent. Here's a dumb question. Uh, after interviewing all these people, do you have a general idea of where most of the character actors are living? Oh, that's wow. Interesting. The Valley is the short answer. The San Fernando Valley is the short yes. answer. Thumbs up. Yeah. Thumbs up. That's the short answer. And I'm going to be, I, I don't want to, you know, anyone, uh, you know, having their house surrounded by, you know, six or seven rabid fans, but I, I uh, um, yeah, the, I would say uh, 818 for the most part. <laughs> Uh, understood. I will. My guess is that Valley Village uh, has a very large percentage of classic character actors in it. For Chicago improvisers, Valley Village has become the preferred destination uh, to buy a home, though most of them did it about 10, 15 years ago. Most of the ones that I know. No, a Valley Village for for Chicago people is uncanny. That is that is Wrigley West. It is really something to behold. You are not wrong about that. That is well observed. Yeah, Valley Village is um my god, they should just like you should be able to pick up, you know, bratwurst at every corner and and yeah. Well, they put a Geno's East on Riverside. So Did they really? Oh, yes, they did. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, but yeah, the Valley in general, because I think it was a lot of people who crave, who have very um, uh, eclectic and complicated and erratic careers and as such wanted the stability that the Valley can provide while still having proximity to auditions and studios. <laughs> um, so, the, there's very the practical reasons why the Valley is so big among my guests. Well, absolutely. And I will say as a as a Gen Xer and someone who did move here to become an actor and was an actor for uh, a good chunk of time. Yeah. You know, you move here and you realize that Silver Lake, Los Feliz, Hollywood, those are the fun places to live and the fun places to be in your 20s. Mm -hmm. And when most of your friends are getting their shit together and buying homes, the Valley really used to be a better... Um, a better choice uh, to have a bigger house with a bigger yard and access to a wider variety of schools. Yeah. Um, because um, if you live in Hollywood, you're going to probably end up, you know, driving your kid 30, 40 minutes away uh, to high school. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like in the thirties, people started just my experience. People started moving to the Valley, uh, St. Francis. You mean in people's in people's thirties, not in the nineteen thirties? It made it, you made it sound like you were alive for the depression. Well, in the nineteen thirties, I think Stan Laurel <laughs> uh, actually bought up a big chunk of the valley, or was it Oliver Hardy? Anyway, what was I going to say? I was going to say I think in the in your in your thirties, that was sort of the the period where I saw people getting their shit together and buying homes. Definitely into their forties. Yeah, um, definitely. Definitely. So, when I when I moved here, the valley was still kind of looked at as because uh, I moved here from New York City. So there is a sense of like, oh, the valley is L.A.'s Jersey. And if you move there, you have all but conceded defeat. It's <laughs> 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 a very, very narrow minded view of the situation. The valley is awesome. Um, you get the right place in the valley. You can walk to coffee. There is theaters. There's a bunch of stuff you can do in the valley. There's great hikes. 
there's a, a bunch of really interesting history. Have you ever been to the Valley Relics Museum? Tell people about the Valley Relics Museum. The Valley Relics Museum is up near, I think it's up near Sherman Oaks, and it's a collection of, well, relics from the San Fernando Valley. So they have old original licorice pizza signs and history about all the Westerns where they, all the ranches where they used to shoot Westerns up there. A lot of it's been developed and turned into condos or condos or golf courses now, but it's this fun little history. And the, the, the history of the San Fernando Valley as a place of commerce is barely a hundred years old. So it's a very compact museum. And they also, on top of everything else, have a bunch of cool free-to-play vintage video games. So if you want to take in a little 818 history and, and play some Galaga, I strongly recommend the Valley Relics Museum. <laughs> I think that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson may or may not have taken a sign or two from the Valley Relics Museum for the movie. Licorice Pizza. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, it's a it's a gorgeous collection. It's a really um, it's a really cool place to hang out. Well, you know, I mean, for me growing up, well, I should say my idea of Los Angeles was really informed by movies and television shows. And most of those movies and television shows were actually set in the Valley. Mm -hmm. um, whether it was Fast Times at Ridgemont High, yep. or Valley Girl, or mm -hmm. every other episode of Chips. Um, so right. it's, it's, it, it is a wonderful place. I've been here for 32 years, and four of them were spent living um, in the sort of universe the, where Universal City, Studio City, and North Hollywood merge. I'm back in Beechwood Canyon now, so I'm, I'm back in La La Land. But um, it's, the Valley's great. It's you, all the same county. You can move around. Yeah, you yeah. can move the fuck around. Um, all right, enough about that. I'm so excited that um, Household Faces is moving along and um you're crushing it it's so cool and so fun oh, thanks man uh so i want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to do the brando cast today and when i asked mr john ross bowie to do the brando cast i had an idea about putting together something that i would call mr john ross bowie's punk rock playlist which i asked him to put together a list of his essential punk rock songs and hopefully those selections will lead us to some fun discussions so what do you have for me first up john well i sent you the list earlier and i'm realizing as we go here that i'm gonna i'm gonna switch one of these out <laughs> <laughs> because we've been talking so much about the valley i gotta throw in my favorite band from the valley and we'll get to that in a moment but we're gonna start where i started with which was with the Ramones, specifically the first Ramones record titled Ramones, released in 1976, produced by Craig Leon in a weird sort of um, in a very strange stereo where all the bass is in one channel and all the guitar is in another channel, which is great if you're learning how to play bass because you can just mix out the guitar entirely and just play along with Dee Dee on this record. Very valuable. That's a fun little bit of trivia. They've since re-released it as like a and then the original mono mix, but I'm, I'm partial to the original, like one channel over here, one channel over here mix. Um, the song from that record is not for me. It's not Blitzkrieg bop. It's not beat on the brat. It's not loud mouth. It's not of any of the ones that really come up all the time for me. It's now I want to sniff some glue. Now 
when I saw the record, when I saw the cassette sitting in Tower Records on the Upper West Side, I flipped it over and that was the title that leaped out at me and made me giggle so hard because, you know, they're, they're famous uh, for their songs about the things they want to do. I want to be sedated. I want to be your boyfriend. Um, I want to have something to do. Um, but what I love about this one is the now, the modifier now sets up such a great tone and it follows it follows i want to be your boyfriend it's like two or three songs later after i want to be your boyfriend on side one of this tremendous record so it almost feels like we're just kind of taking joey through his day and he's just taking things off his to off his to-do list <laughs> want to be your boyfriend okay i took care of that what shall i do oh now i want to sniff some glue <laughs> and I, I literally it is 40 years after i bought that record and i am still giggling over just that title and it's simplicity it's so i i love it so much it's got a great sing-along scream chorus thing it's got a cool little guitar break which is a little unusual particularly for that era of the ramones where it was all chords and very little in the way of single note playing but there's a weird little middle eight where they kind of show off a little bit i think it's i think it's actually johnny playing um there's just a lot to like about that song and if i'm going to pick one song off the first punk album I ever bought, it's going to be now I want to sniff some glue. Okay, we talked about your love of the Ramones the last time you were on the podcast. Mm -hmm. But I just want to say, when I think about New York City, and mm -hmm. I think about the bands that have come from New York, mm -hmm. there's so many bands, mm -hmm. the Ramones to me are in my top three of musical acts that have come from the, the uh, five borough area, if you will. All right, hang on. I want to guess the other two. Okay. Um, Velvet Underground? I, they, I, they, I would put them at number six. Interesting. But oh, I mean, because I don't like them. Right. But you can't discount their influence. Absolutely though, not. Because you got these are these are the guys that are influencing both Ramones and Pavement. I mean, uh, that 100%. that reach is huge. Uh, okay. Ag agreed, agreed, agreed. I just can't stand them. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. So the Velvets are out. Um, New York. Are we talking just guitars or are we going to include hip hop? You can include hip hop. Run DMC. Yes. Okay. Great. Yeah, I put them there as well. I um, it's pretty hard to underplay their their influence, even before Walk This Way. Just bringing guitars in on Rockbox or King of Rock, which are both incredible bops that I actually prefer to Walk This Way. You, I mean, they're like, oh, what if we rapped, but we were also yelling? Whoa, you know, like how groundbreaking that was. You know, um, uh, New York Dolls. Um, I would put them at number eight on my list. Really, mm -hmm. really interesting. I'd, I'd figure I, I would figure that by being less pretentious than the Velvet Underground, <laughs> whom I like, you would prefer the dolls who are, you know, much less like, you know, we're all, you know, we're five Arthur Rimbaud's here. You know, there's something just straight ahead rock and roll about New York Dolls that is infinitely less precious than the Velvet Underground. All right. Ramones, Run DMC. You can cut this part if you need to, but I need to get through it. Um, <laughs> Run DMC, coming out of New York. It might surprise the hell out of you. Wu-Tang? Uh, no more rap. There's no more rap or okay. hip-hop in the top three. Okay, that five boroughs thing made me wonder, like, oh, my God, even Staten Island? Um, so, Molly, <laughs> let's see. Quintessentially New York. Kiss? D number four. Oh, wow. All right, I give up. Billy Joel. Oh, all right. Um, okay. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, no, I'm from, from Long Island, but 
but cut his teeth in the city. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, and I, and and it's a weird one because again, I I could have put Kiss right there, um, but I'll put them at four. And, and Bruce, I give Bruce New Jersey. Uh, I give Bruce Philadelphia. I give Bruce everything else. I give him the shore. Um, but there's something about Billy Joel, I think, to me that that just screams New York to me. That's all. It's funny. It's I. Um, it, Billy Joel is I, whom I enjoy and whom I have seen live, and who I think, particularly the early stuff, is quite magnificent. And if anything from Glass Houses comes on, except the French song, I will crank it. Um, I will set aside Cetetois. Not interested. He's not even he's embarrassed by that. But um, it's funny. I He's one of those guys where even though he gets made fun of all the time, most East Coast, particularly Northeastern people will back him up. He is to the Northeastern corridor, what the Eagles are to the Southwestern corridor in the sense that everybody else makes fun of them. But if you're from the Southwest, chances are you're a little more forgiving of the Eagles. I fucking hate the Eagles, <laughs> but I've got very smart friends who are like, no, I got, I got to get, you got to understand. You grew up with take it easy. You just grew up with take it easy. And I don't understand, but I, I give them their space. <laughs> okay. I, well, two things. I, I also hate the Eagles. However, I did go with my girlfriend, Julia Wallop, who you know. Yeah, sure. See the Eagles the last time they played at the Forum in Los Angeles. Right. And it was undeniable how great the show was. Even post-Glenn. This is post-Glenn, right? Absolutely. It was. Mm. Uh, Vince Gill has sort of taken over a bunch of that stuff. Glenn Frank oh, interesting. Kid was touring with them then, although he's since ducked out. But it's Joe Walsh. I can't stand Don Henley. But they, oh, the biggest they, asshole in rock and roll. Absolutely. absolutely. They, Probably worse than Lou Reed. <laughs> yeah. But they played Hotel California from start to finish. And then the second act of the show was just hits. And when you put all that stuff together, it is undeniable how powerful that band was. Interesting. Yes. When they were at their height, I was discovering Van Halen and Rush and mm -hmm. AC. So their right. music sounded like pure garbage to me. Right. Um, and it was, of course, everywhere. And I will say this. Like, I'm at a dentist's office in Marina Del Rey. <laughs> <laughs> I will say the same thing about Billy Joel. However, um, I was supposed to accompany Julia to go see or, or to go to her nephew's bar mitzvah in Queens uh, back in April. And I got sick which, with COVID probably. And I couldn't go. And we had tickets to go see Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden. And I'm so mad because she kept sending me videos and it was just nothing but hit after hit mm -hmm. after hit after hit after hit. We saw one of the Hollywood Bowl shows he did a few years back. And um, you don't even realize how many Billy Joel songs you like right. <laughs> until, exactly. until you're in the room with him. <laughs> and when you, when they're all strung together, like yeah. it's it's undeniable how great he was. Interesting tangent before we get into your next song. Uh we were supposed to stay at a hotel on the corner of 53rd and 3rd. Oh, my goodness. Really? Hotel on 53rd and 3rd, uh, uh, which is the famous uh, it's the famous male hustling spot where Dee, Dee uh, used to uh, procure uh, for his drug money. Um, you're like a block up from Smith and Walensky's, but I can't picture a hotel there. I feel like I, there's all these like uh just corporate high rises but i'll take your word for it okay yeah no but it was it was like a marriott or a, a hilton or something something like a decent hotel i haven't right lived there. in the city in two decades so anyway okay so moving on 
Okay, so moving on, we say, well, let's move over to the valley now. And I just, I'm going to take out uh, um, one of the songs that we we talked about, which was the oldest song on the list. And I want to replace it with something that I heard shortly after I got into the Ramones. I started to feel a little cocky, like, oh, I can start going off of the um, how funny an album cover or the or the song titles are and uh and i will uh i will let that kind of uh lead me and that got me into the san fernando valley's the dickies so their influence is so wide everyone will give it up for the dickies here's the thing about the dickies is they were the purveyors of American pop punk, like really sugary, like the Ramones were melodic, but the Dickies would do harmonies. The Dickies had chops for days. Um, they always it's it's basically just Leonard and Stan. But those early records, there was a steady lineup. There was a guy there was a multi-instrumentalist who went by Chuck Wagon, who was in the band who played piano and sax. And there's a ton of great songs on the first three records, Incredible Shrinking Dickies, Dawn of the Dickies, and Stukas over Disneyland. And honestly, picking one of them is a uh it's it's a real picking a favorite child thing. And also given that most of them are the lyrics are impossibly tasteless, but I will go with um the fun, energetic song that they chose to introduce themselves to the world. They actually had two albums on a major label. They got caught up in the major label signing uh, frenzy in the late 70s when uh, the Sex Pistols sold a bunch of records and the Ramones and and Talking Heads. They got sold. Uh, they got signed to A&M, released those first two records. And the first song on the first record is called Give It Back, which is about getting your ass kicked by uh, bullies in the valley. <laughs> It is such a fist pumping good time and that it breaks into this electric piano bridge at one point that is so fun to listen to. It's propulsive. It's it's um, snotty. It's got hooks for days. Uh, yeah, they're a they're a really special band. I've actually gotten to know them uh, in the past few years, which has been really exciting to get to know Stan and Leonard, uh, who I've been fans of for literally decades. And um, I saw them live just around Christmas. They're they're still phenomenal. They're a great live act. Well, you know, the great thing about Los Angeles during the late 70s for people listening at home um, was that there was a really weird scene at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Mm -hmm. In that, the Whiskey A Go-Go would feature bands like the Dickies and the Weirdos and the Dills and also Van Halen. Mm-hmm. And so there were a number of nights where the Van where Van Halen was on the same bill as the Dickies. Stan Lee has amazing stories about meeting Eddie Van Halen uh, and and speaks very highly of him. And he gave him a copy of uh, the, the Dickies covered Paranoid did like a really like, you know, sped up amphetamine fueled version of Paranoid that he he gave. Uh, he gave the seven inch to, to Eddie Van Halen, who was apparently very gracious and lovely about it. Um, but, yeah, they would do. um the very very early versions of hair metal and the and the early versions of LA punk would end up bumping into each other on the Sunset Strip all the time. Yeah, I fantasize. There's a there are a number of places, uh, music scenes that I wish that I had a time machine that I could go back and participate in. Oh one, yeah, one is Sunset Strip, circa 1964, 65, 66 into 67. Uh, you know, the birds are playing at Ciro's 
Sonny right, and right. Cher. Sonny and Cher are playing at the Whiskey A Go Go. Uh, Frank Zappa and the Mothers are playing at the Whiskey A Go Go. I, I fantasize about being around during that period of time, not necessarily participating in the Laurel Canyon scene, but just being in LA. Uh-huh. The late '70s punk scene, hard mm-hmm. rock scene in LA. That's another one that I fantasize about. Well, that I mean, because the, you the whiskey's obviously great, and there's tons of history there. But you move down. That my big thing is I would have loved to have seen some of those shows at the Mask. Um, off Hollywood Boulevard. Um, it's right where the Go-Go's have their uh, Hall of Fame, their Walk of Fame star. Uh, you had to go like behind a building and down underneath. And it was a it was a fire trap, even by punk club standards. It sounded like the most deadly place to be. But it just was so much hornier and more diverse than the New York punk scene. You know, there were more women in bands. And not just because, you know, their husband or their boyfriend was in the band. Like there were just more women in bands. You had the Go-Go's, you had Alice Bag. Um, you had this massive Latino presence that New York didn't have. It just seemed like it was a, a, a really fun, eclectic scene at the Mask and the Starwood and those places. It just, yeah, that's that's where I would spend my time machine money. Uh, that The Starwood, which was on Crescent Heights and um, Santa Monica, Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another place that so many of my favorite bands got their start at. Quiet Riot played there. Motley Crue played there. Yeah, uh, all the punk bands played there. Um, it, it, yeah, L.A. was just an amazing place. And for people listening at home, if you want to see what this was all about, Penelope Spheris's fantastic documentary "Decline of Western Civilization" Part One, released in 1980, chronicled this exact scene. Um, so definitely go check that out. All right. Yeah. Uh, moving on, number three. Third number choice. three, we travel to the Bay Area for my political awakening, which is a horrible sentence. No good can come from this, <laughs> except, of course, the good does come from this. I speak, of course, of the Dead Kennedys and their song Holiday in Cambodia, which actively frightened me the first time I heard it. It begins with this weird vamp. And here's the thing about the Dead Kennedys. The Dead Kennedys could be hard as hell. They could really, really kick your ass. But they also knew when to be kind of quiet and experimental and psychedelic in a way that their peers on the West Coast didn't. You know, there was nobody, like the Avengers weren't playing around like that. It would be a few years before Black Flag started playing around like that. Everyone was just loud, fast rules. And the Dead Kennedys were like, we could do some kind of weird scary things and then they would match it with lyrics that kind of shook you out of your comfy liberalism um, on songs like California Uber Alice which warns about like a complacency that can come when you vote for Jerry Brown all the time <laughs> and and Holiday in Cambodia is a song decrying decrying sort of that that branded East Coast liberal of which I myself am a member and it was basically calling out white privilege before we had a name for such a thing. Mm. And it is a powerful screed against self-congratulatory leftists that I, I literally hear something new about it every time I, I, I listen to that song. It, it's a powerful piece of work off the amazing Fresh Fruits for Rotting Vegetables record. Um, it's got Jell-O's piercing uh, lyrics and, and just... 
some of the most interesting guitar work from East Bay Ray, uh, the whole band. I mean, that band was insane. And unlike a lot of punk bands, there's one drummer switch, which is unheard of for a punk band <laughs> to only have had two drummers. <laughs> they really, uh, they, they, the main lineup that everyone thinks of is, uh, is Jello, East Bay Ray, Klaus Fluoride, Darren Poligro on drums. Um, and I think that's Darren on, on a holiday. It's, um, they were just a powerhouse band, just really, really good, powerful, um, stuff that did not, congratulate you for having the politics you have. They made, they asked a lot of questions that were not always easy to answer. And um, it's very easy to get, uh, you know, to get very self-congratulatory. Like, oh, I'm punk rock. I'm into the edgy stuff. You know, I'm, I'm anti-authority. And, you know, the, the Kennedys were the ones who would ask the questions that are in holiday in Cambodia. They have, there's an amazing one on their last record on bedtime for democracy where um, there's a couplet. It's not even a couplet. It doesn't rhyme. It just goes, anarchy sounds good to me. Then someone asks, who'd fix the sewers? <laughs> you know, they were just out there like criticizing punk rock from within in a way that no other genre does, you know? It was well, really fun. That's um for people who want to cross-reference, one of the early podcasts I did on the Brandocast was with D.H. Peligro. Oh, really? Uh, Oh yeah, I had D. Well, I know I've known D. H. Uh, Darren, as you called him, uh, for a long time. He lives out here, right? He lives in L. A. He or lives in, like, in L. A. Yeah. And he was uh, a regular member of the Hollywood YMCA. And for those of us who were like there every single day, you know, for years and years and years, you just sort of get to know people. Oh my god! And you know, we like just struck up a conversation one day because I was wearing like an Iron Maiden shirt, and you know, it just sort of went from there. And we had mutual friends, and he's the best guy possible. Uh, he's really like soulful, grounded uh, guy. He lived the life. His mm -hmm. stories of being like the lone black guy in that San Francisco punk rock scene are incredible. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a book out that I should read called Dreadnought yeah. um, that I, I, I should definitely read because I bet he's got an interesting perspective. We were driving along uh, on the east side near Pasadena one time and I passed a car that an old vintage car that had the license plate Peligro. And I was like, well, I mean, that would be too much of a coincidence. And lo and behold, that's DH behind the wheel. <laughs> I was like, wow. And I was I wasn't driving. Jamie was driving, and my wife, God love her, kind of give a shit about the dead Kennedys. And I was like, "Pull up, pull up! I got to wave to the guy." And we just we lost him in traffic. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, you know he um, he will uh, you know well the the Hollywood Y is closed. It has not reopened since the pandemic started. Uh, but he would often, speaking of character actors, he would often be reading sides as he was. Um, you know, using the elliptical machines or or whatever, and that's sort of the middle room they had there at the Hollywood Y. Right, always working on sides. Uh, just one of the best guys ever. All right, moving on to song number four on Mister John Ross Bowie's punk rock essential punk rock song playlist. We move north to British Columbia, Vancouver specifically. And the North American punk greats DOA. I got into DOA. There was a little window in like six months in eighth grade, ninth grade, where I started just buying a bunch of punk records based on, as I said, you know, how funny the titles were, how striking the covers were. And DOA's Bloodied But Unbowed 
is um, the cover is Mount Rushmore, but all the eyes are bleeding, <laughs> which was, you know, that's an arresting graphic when you're used to like, oh, actually, this is um, the cover is uh, the band and they're wearing a lot of makeup and their hair is awesome. <laughs> um, but in lieu of, like, I had no idea what these guys looked like at all. No idea what these guys looked like. There was no way I could have known what these guys looked like. There's no pictures. It did not have a lyric insert. At least my version didn't. But there was a bunch of great songs on there. DOA are one of those bands that are, they're a great punk band, obviously. They're punk legends, but they're they are just a great rock band. The riffs are insane. Uh, uh, Joey Shithead and Dave Gregg on guitars on those first couple of records. The, the guitar work is so fun and so so air guitar playable along with um it's uh it, it's just a really really fun record the the song that struck me um for its combination of hooks and uh fear and anger is not actually that fun it just sound it sounds like a really upbeat song but it's called world war three and it is about just that It is um, a cry from the North for uh, common sense and civility when there is none going on, uh, anchored by just this incredibly sick axe work. Um, there were a lot of anti-war songs in the 80s that, that were out there and charted even, you know, 99 Luftballons, uh, It's a Mistake by Men at Work, like those songs a lot, but none of them had Joey screaming into the mic, I just, just don't want to die. <laughs> and that, that got under my skin. I just really felt seen by this. I had a great deal of uh, nuclear paranoia throughout the 80s. And to get this right in the middle of the, the, the Reagan administration, four years into his eight years in office, I, I just felt uh, represented by this fear. <laughs> Well, people, I you know, not to Gen explain things for the kids listening at home, but the threat of nuclear war was omnipresent. Mm -hmm. A lot of heavy metal songs about the threat of nuclear war. That's for sure. Yep, yep, yep. A lot of <laughs> a lot of metal songs. Yep, absolutely. And then um, movies like Mad Max, which were basically like this is what life would be like in a post-apocalyptic society. Yeah, and I would not do well. Um, by <laughs> just looking around at Mad Max like that. Those aren't my people. My best bet is I get a ride on the back of uh, Humongous's friend. Um, it's not hum Humongous is the main guy, but, you know, the, the one who just screams and has the cute blonde friend who uh, dies yeah. with the feral kids uh, boomerang Wes. in his forehead. Wes or Bez Wes. or whatever. Yeah, whatever. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, my best bet is I hitch a ride with that guy and come what may I, um, yeah, no, it was, it was a scary time and it felt like we were in a constant pissing contest and there were tons, there was tons of the day after came out uh, on TV. Testament came out in movie theaters. There was a silver spoons episode about the threat of nuclear war <laughs> where Ricky is, has a dream where he's the president and he gets into a pissing contest with then premier and drop off who you never see. Um, but I remember this. I got, I remember this episode vividly. That's how omnipresent it was that like what was ostensibly a children's show would spook you about nuclear war. So this song, this screaming two and a half minute rave up was just, it just spoke to me. I got to see them do it live just a few weeks ago at the Roxy uh, holds up. <laughs> 
holds up. It is a banger. How was that show in general? Really fun. They did all of Hardcore 81 and then a few little surprises in there, uh, including their cover of Edwin Starr's War, um, which was actually the first version I ever heard of that before Edwin Starr's original or the Bruce Springsteen. I heard DOA's version. Wow. (laughs) Um, And um, yeah, they were they were great. And of course, Canadian. So nicest guys in the world got to talk to them briefly. They could not have been friendlier. Please and thank you all the way. Made sure I had a place to sit. Didn't need one, but they made sure it was just lovely guys. Uh, What a great band. uh, DOA. Moving on. Who do you have for us at number five? At number five, my my late friend, Sasha Petrosky brought a dual tape deck boom box to camp and some blank tapes. And it was fortuitous because he taped for me the first clash record. I had heard London calling and I'd heard rock the Casbah and uh, should I stare? Should I go? Obviously, but I did not know anything off the first couple records. And he taped the first clash record for me. The, what I believe is the American release, which begins with with Classic City Rockers and I'm So Bored with the USA, both of which are on um, Black Market Clash. They're on Black Market Clash. That's the record they're on. But this one starts with um, Classic City Rockers and I'm So Bored with the USA, which is the one I'm going to pick. To have, again, to have somebody criticizing America in the middle of the go-go 80s, in the middle of Top Gun and Firefox and Rambo and all this stuff going on, to have somebody, especially somebody from another culture, another country, criticize the country in such a dismissive way. It wasn't even, I hate you, USA. It's like, I'm fucking bored with you guys. You're, you know, killers in America work seven days a week. And I just, it was so jarring lyrically and then musically that's another just fantastic guitar record i mean it just sounds like mick and joe are just beating the shit out of those guitars at every step of the way and it's it's just a a fist pumping masterpiece i love that song it begins with a great riff but then it's also really catchy like the best uh uh the best clash songs they were great songwriters so um there's a, a a wonderful little hook on that chorus on the I'm so bored with the USA. I mean, just how do you not? It's my biggest regret is that I, I never saw them live. How, where was camp? Camp was in uh, Connecticut. Uh, and it was a it was a really interesting mix of um, suburban Connecticut kids and kids from the city. And um, we all got along for the most part, but there was still sort of a strange like so. What do you mean you only walk when you go to the mall? What? You know, there's just a lot of like weird um, cultural disconnects between, you know, somebody living 45 minutes outside of Hartford and somebody living in Manhattan. But it was a fun camp. And Sasha was the coolest guy in the world. He went on to be a very famous mixologist who ran a very elite cocktail place in lower Manhattan. And he died a few years ago. I, I had not gotten back in touch with him in forever, but he was the coolest. He, Sasha Petrosky's mom worked for the Village Voice, which, you know, automatically, hi, you're the coolest person ever. And aside, he, he taped me an insane Ramones bootleg that 
in the year of our Lord 2022, I can't track down. I like he had this cassette. It was I think it was off a radio broadcast from the Pleasant Dreams tour. And it's packed with stuff from that album that they didn't often perform live, like um, uh, This Business is Killing Me. And uh, I think Not My Place in the Nine to Five World is on there. All the stuff that they they only did live on that tour. I can't find my cassette and I've never been able to find it elsewhere. Um, Sasha was was a really cool guy. That was a big loss. Um, yeah, we, I, th- that's a it's a current it's a constant theme on this podcast the the musical Sherpas that sh- show up in our life like the the, yeah. the the older kids the older brothers the older sisters older mm-hmm. kids at school you know the people that basically show up and say hey you need to be listening to this hey here's a mixtape of this you need to be listening to what whatever. Um, it's heartbreaking, really, because I've I've lost a few of them now. That I, when you put it that way, as musical Sherpas, and it's easy to blame, you know, New York in the seventies and eighties, and maybe that's partially true. But the the guy who got me into Maiden is no longer with us. The guy who got me into the Clash is no longer with us. There's there's a, a few people I have lost on this musical journey, but. Um, you know, they, uh, their memories are a blessing. So I have that going for me. Well, I know you've also been that person for other people as well. Yeah. And I'm still kicking around. Um, where, what, where were some of the spots that you guys would go in Manhattan as teens to go get records? Oh, um, that all about. Yeah, that was, um, it was a golden age for record stores in lower Manhattan. I started, as I said, at tower records on the upper West, which was, um, you know, obviously it was, it was, I think the biggest chain, um, it wasn't the biggest chain, but it was the most comprehensive chain. Like they would have stuff that Sam Goody wouldn't cover. They had an improv section, uh, improv, they had an import section. They had a bunch of cool shit. Um, but then I started to get a little braver and you had to be brave because you went to these punk rock spaces and you were terrified to be called a poser or to not look cool. And I was walking in there with my allowance and, you know, I, uh, I got very, self-conscious at a lot of these places there was a place on 23rd street called midnight records which was just a few blocks north of my high school uh it's literally across from the chelsea hotel like if you know that block right across from there was a place called midnight records they also ran a small garage label uh, i'm using garage in the older sense of like four guys in an actual garage not like in the the british um dance music sense but i bought tons i bought my first descendants record there i bought my first cramps record there i bought a bunch of like risky seven inches um i got to that point as you do in indie rock where you start to trust labels like oh this label has never done me wrong so i will buy something off alternative tentacles and it might be the crucifix or grong grong or something else that doesn't age particularly well but there it is you know and um so midnight records was great um second coming down in the west village obviously bleaker bobs down in the west village and there was a really creepy one down in a basement on east just off the bowery on east 6th street i want to say yeah because it was like it was right near mcsorley's ale house but you went down to a basement it was literally just called some records but you could also pronounce it some records (laughs) and it was all punk and hardcore and you went in there and that place was uh intimidatingly cool and because it was in a basement, it had the speakeasy vibe. You know, you felt like you weren't, you know, supposed to be there. And then years later, I heard that the guy who ran it might have been a white supremacist. I can't confirm that. <laughs> um, but uh, I didn't spend a ton of money there is the good news. Um, but yeah, it, that those were the places. There were some great places. Also, I want to shout out um, 
it moved back and forth from 8th Street to 6th Street and then back to 8th Street. There was an all zine store called um, See Here, which was mostly music zines, but they had all sorts of other stuff there too. Um, political stuff, you know, you, you could, you, you, they would carry like, Noam Chomsky chat books, all sorts of crazy shit. And that place was a real eye opener for, for a young kid in eighties, uh, New York, a lot. They kicked around to like the early nineties before they closed, which, and the fact that it was an exclusively a store that exclusively sold zines is just, I mean, everything in there, pretty much everything in there was, was at best a color copy. I don't think anything was hardbound. <laughs> I was always blown away when I would go to New York in the 80s, you know, as a teen, as a visiting teen, and go to some of those record stores. I was always blown away by the um, collection of bootlegs because yeah. bootlegs were impossible to get, it seemed, outside of Manhattan. Second Coming was great for bootlegs. And they'd have like the really cool ones where like there would be like just Robert Smith's picture on it. it wouldn't say the cure anywhere, but you knew, wink, no track listing. And you just have to get a gamble and it would be like an amazing BBC set from like 1980 with just all shit from the first two records. You know, there was really um, it was like buying drugs. You know, it was just really it was a, a really um, subterfuge kind of thing that was a delight. But yeah, Second Coming, which was Thompson Sullivan Sullivan it was on Sullivan, Sullivan I think yeah. I have I, I wish I knew we were talking about this because I have I still have a Springsteen bootleg that I bought at, at Second Coming. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, I bet uh, it's great. It was on vinyl, uh, multiple vinyl, like three or four uh, uh-huh. LPs, but it was like a long radio concert that they just pressed on vinyl. But, um, you know, second coming records, unbelievable. Okay. Moving on. I think it's the last song. We have reached the end. On your playlist. We've reached the end. So I, um, I have to shout out one of the greatest live bands with some of the most problematic views who have been through a few evolutions, I think, and probably don't feel the way they used to, but bad brains were a powder keg live. If you got to see them at their peak in the mid 1980s, and I didn't see them till the eye against eye tour. Um, but that was still HR doing backflips, HR being their, their lead singer. They were amazing. Cause there was nobody, there was nobody harder who had the musicianship to back it up. There were lots of really hard bands and there were lots of really good tight bands, but there were very few bands that were like, could melt your goddamn face off with their, with their rage and their speed and also really, really play their instruments. But they were all amazing. And I, I think they used to like, they got started in jazz fusion or something. Um, they were also devout Rastafarians and as such had some very problematic views on gay people. They also were dealing with a great deal of mental health issues. Um, I'm not making excuses. I'm just trying to put some stuff in context here. They had a song called Band in DC. Which was a true story about the fact that they were no longer allowed to play clubs in the nation's capital. And in these days before the internet, somebody said, oh yeah, the Bad Brains got uh, banned in DC because somebody got killed at one of their shows. And I just went, okay, that's, I believe that. You said that to me. Why would you lie to me, senior with a mohawk? Um, This is uh, obviously true. And it's telling that, well, in, in hindsight, not true. Their shows were violent, but Black Flag shows were violent and fucking TSOL shows were violent. They're basically, you know, they're not a particularly hard band. They were kind of hooky. They had a they had a keyboard player on some of their records, you know, 
But I, I'm I find it interesting that myself and a lot of white teens like me immediately were like, yeah, somebody got killed in a bad brain show. I guess that's how it goes. That's you know, that's just life. And, you know, it's not easy to admit this kind of what was probably a, a deep seated racism of the worst kind of like the worst kind of sort of mild, like easily deniable racism. Like I didn't say anything. I just believed a thing, you know, <laughs> um, it's, it's, you know, I, I, I was a, a, a garbage kid wrapped in uh, a great deal of, uh, of white privilege, which is why I picked this on because it is, it's such an interesting defiance and it calls out the fact that they were banned in DC, but there were tons of other bands that had tons of other violent uh, outbursts at their shows who were not banned in DC, who were still playing the nine thirty club. Um, you know, Fugazi used to have to break up fights all the time. And that started under minor threat. You know, there's tons of DC. The DC bands were hard as hell. DC was a loud fucking scene and New York was even louder. And there were all sorts of fights and injuries, but it was the it was bad brains who got banned. And that's troubling. And it always and the fact that I didn't question it is something I'm embarrassed about. So I am uh, I am taking to your podcast to uh sift through <laughs> well you know the uh speaking of dc the king of generation x dave Grohl, has said many times that uh bad brains were the best band he's ever seen live and he has seen everybody he's seen everybody and um he's uh he's right man they were unstoppable i saw them a couple times but when they came back to town, because I think they relocated to New York, but when they came back to town on the Eye Against Eye tour, this is summer 1987, they played an old roller rink um, that used to be called the Roxy Roller Rink, and then it became a music venue. So, like, I'm 12 years old, I go to a roller rink uh, birthday party. I'm 16 years old, I go to a Bad Brain show. This bill was crazy, by the way. It was um, Bad Brain's headlining opening up were Living Color and Circle Jerks. Wow. Bonkers show. The entire rink. What used to be the roller rink was the biggest pit I've ever seen before or since. Just all pit. I was off to the side because I'm not getting to the pit at a Bad Brain show. Because, again, I thought someone had died in the pit at a Bad Brain show. <laughs> I had readily believed that. It was just anarchy. And they sounded amazing. And they had energy for days. And, again, he would do these standing backflips. He was the most in-shape punk on the East Coast, because by this point, Rollins had moved west. He was the most in shape punk I have ever seen in my life. That guy, Jesus Christ. Wow. Um, they were um, they were really impressive live. God, that's amazing. Um, I saw them when they released Quickness. That was when I saw Bad Brains, but that was also a million, uh, million years ago. That's like, um, yeah, that's like an album or two after I Against Die, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What uh, what else is going on? Is there anything you want to promote or do you want to just let everyone know how they can find Household Faces? You can find Household Faces wherever you get your podcasts. I am on a couple of social media platforms at John Ross Bowie, and I have a book coming out in the fall, which tells some punk rock stories and tells some employment stories and some uh, some uh, comedy stories. Uh, it's called No Job for a Man. And Pegasus Books is putting it out in November of 2022. No way. Yeah. Is it a memoir of sorts? It is a memoir of sorts. Yeah. It's more of a memoir than it is a collection of comedy essays. It's It's got kind of a through line. Um, and uh, I, I, 
probably versions of stuff we've talked about. I haven't looked at it in a little bit, but versions of stuff we've talked about uh, on this show uh, uh, find their way into uh, that book. And um, I just found out I am actually, I am also going to do the audiobook for it, which is fun. So if you don't mind listening to this deep yet nasal voice for uh, four or five hours, then uh, boy, have I got a treat for you. Okay, well, here's what we're going to do. When the time comes, I'm going to get that book and I'm going to read it. And then you're going to come on in November to promote that book. It's a date. Oh, my God. That's so fucking exciting. Congratulations. Thank you, man. Thank you. Um, you know, just pulling off anything these days. Pulling off anything is, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but pulling off something in publishing, especially when I'm not like the sort of, like I've got a little bit of a following, but I'm not the kind of famous actor who can just like shit out a, a children's book in rhymed couplets and automatically get a deal at Macmillan. You know, like I got to hustle a little bit. You know, I've got to have something to show for this. You know, um, this can't just be something about like I love being a granddad. You know, I gotta, you know, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta hustle a little bit. I've got to have some quality to back this up. So it feels good. Yeah. Okay, but I imagine that music is woven all throughout. The story, correct? There's a ton of music in there. It was it all? It's all connected for me. There's no way. I, you mentioned uh, Darren from the DKs um, going over sides. Um, I transitioned from being in a punk band to going into acting, and it was. I won't say it an easy transition, but it was a sensible transition. And I'm frankly surprised that more people, I'm surprised there aren't more Henry Rollins in the world. I'm surprised there aren't more Lee Vings and people who go from punk to acting because uh, there's an authenticity and uh, a a sincerity in, in punk that I think serves acting really well. Wow. I mean, well, we have some of our great punk actors. Flea, of course. Flea, John Doe. John Doe. My God, of course, John Doe. I used to have the same agent as John Doe. And it was, it was, I was like, this is, I've done it. I've arrived. I've got the same agent as John Doe. John Doe and I get the same breakdowns. This is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we'll have to save that story uh, of how you transition from uh, punk rock to acting because uh, I bet that involved a step or two. It did, but it worked out. Damn. All right. Well, sh- well, Christ balls. We've run out of time. Um, but dude, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending the time today and full disclosure, people, this idiot hit a stop recording halfway through our conversation. We finished this podcast and had to go back and do songs four, five, and six again. No, that's not true. We didn't have to do six again because I caught it after five. I was like, wait a second. I don't think you're recording, Brendan. I I mean, I'm just such it. it, it, It's actually the first time it's happened. Well, then great. (laughs) And it worked out. I had some time this afternoon. It all worked out fine. Nothing to worry about. You didn't even have to tell anybody, by the way. No one was going to be the wiser. I'd cut this if I were you. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Full disclosure. You know, warts and all. Who the fuck cares, right? (laughs) Uh, But again, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Absolutely. Always a pleasure, sir. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for liking, listening, subscribing, telling your friends to listen to the Brando cast. So many great guests coming down the line. But of course, who can beat Mr. John Ross Bowie? Nobody. Nobody. And of of course. A lot of people can beat me. A lot of people. Henry (laughs) Rollins, for one. (laughs) I could be. Do you know that I tested to be the host of Rock and Roll Jeopardy, and the um, the final three people that were at the the, the test on mm-hmm. the set of Jeopardy were me, Jeff Probst, and Henry Rollins. 
For real. You know, this is why I don't gamble, because I would not have put money on Jeff Probst, who got the job. I would not have. I would have looked at those three and I'd have been like, yeah, it's it's funny guy or Rollins for the name recognition. <laughs> I I this other guy looks like the golf pro at, at, at like a restricted country club. I'm not interested. I get all due respect. The guy's made an incredible career, but like I would not have put money on Jeff Probst for that gig. Well, he he got it because I think he did because I tried to be funny guy and I think that got in my way. Even yeah. though, even though the great Alex Trebek told me to keep it simple, keep it economical. People don't want to hear you talk. Just keep things moving along. Interesting, mm -hmm. interesting. That's still an amazing story, though. Yeah, Gersh. I was a Gersh in the night. <laughs> uh, and of course, the Brando Cast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens. In the heat of the summer.